Some of you about right now are going, are you up already? We weren't done. I feel the same way. Uh, On the first Sunday of the month, we have communion, so we'll sing some more songs at the end, which means I get up a little bit earlier. That also gives me the opportunity to let you know that one of the things that we're going to, as we focus on community this year, on February the 23rd, three weeks from tonight, we're going to gather together as a church family in this room for a night of worship, okay? We're going to sing a lot and, 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 and worship Christ together. And you don't have to listen to me. So February 23rd, mark that down. It's going to be a great night together. Well, many of you know about the caste system, primarily associated with India, where despite reform efforts, it remains quite widespread. The system can actually be found throughout Asia and Africa. It is inextricably linked with Hinduism, although it is also spread to Buddhism, Sikhism, Islam, and sadly, Christianity. It's a very complicated system of social stratification, social classes. I won't try to explain it all to you, and I I say it that way to make you think that I get it and it's just too complicated for you. Actually, I say it that way because I don't get it either. Here's a chart of India's caste system. The points I want to make are these. For many years, it's been understood that you did not switch castes within your lifetime. Whatever caste you're born into, uh, you're stuck for life. Second, there's no intermingling of those castes. You don't marry outside your caste. You don't typically even associate outside your group. Third, The lowest group, notice it's not even touching the system because it's technically not even a caste. It actually falls outside the system. They are the Dalits. You perhaps know them as the untouchables. Interesting, the word Dalit doesn't appear in their sacred writings. The the, the word means ground or suppressed or crushed or broken. They are the lowest of the low, and they comprise about 16% of India's population. You say, that's not too bad until you do the math and figure out that's about 200 million people. Again, I am aware of attempted political reforms in India to um, raise the standard of living of the untouchables and to curb the acts of violence and and prejudice perpetrated against them. But But one thing I want you to know Uh, is that this system is built into their religion. You see, the untouchables are born into this subgroup as punishment for a poorly lived former life. They believe in reincarnation. So as untouchables, they then perform the, the most menial tasks in society. They're not even allowed to eat in the same um, room as the, uh, the upper castes, even drink from the same well. In the past, not only could they not serve as priests, they weren't even allowed to step foot into a temple, which meant there's a sense in which there was no religious hope for them in this life. They simply hoped to live their current untouchable life 
well so that maybe, just maybe, they could be reborn into a higher caste. Please notice, at the top of the pyramid are the priests, as they should be. Everyone else is below them. Religious leaders are at the top of the food chain. They certainly did not associate with those untouchables. Now, I want you to know how opposite this is supposed to be from Christianity. Yes, because of the cultural environment in those Asian and African countries, the caste system has tainted the Christian faith, but it is not supposed to be that way, not within Christianity. (laughs) And not that our society doesn't have its own caste systems, right? Yeah, right. Blue collar, white collar. Educated, uneducated. White and Well, pretty much everyone else, not white. Freshmen and upperclassmen, can anybody say amen? Enlisted and officers, rich and and poor, on and on. We have our own social classes. But let me give you a personal example of a class system and the way Christianity is supposed to eliminate those social divisions, those social structures. In fact, as I get ready to tell the story, let me say it this way. Christianity is supposed to revolutionize relationships. A couple of months ago, I shared with you that I began my post-high school education at a military academy, the Air Force Academy uh, in Colorado Springs. In addition to being a college, they train cadets. That's what they're called. They're cadets, not plebes. That's West Point. Uh, the West Point is where you go if you can't get into the Air Force Academy. <laughs> we have some West Point grads here who think they're all that. Okay. So they train cadets uh, to be officers in the United States Air Force. Now, trust me, the caste system is alive and well there. Freshmen... The lowest of the low are known as doolies. Think untouchables. And all of the stories that you have heard about marching everywhere you go and squaring your corners and standing at attention and eating at attention and all the hazing, it's all true, probably a lot worse than you've heard. You actually are not even called a cadet You see, you're not actually in the system. You're in a subgroup until the end of your first year. They called me Mr. Andrews, and that was not a term of respect. But, but of course, we were allowed to call them by their first names, sir or ma'am. And and don't forget to begin every sentence with sir or ma'am. And by the way, don't mix those two up. I did. Once, I called a ma'am, sir. That did not go well for me, even though she looked like a sir. (laughs) I had to report to one of those upperclassmen in my chain and explain to them how I did not know the difference between a man and a woman. You can only imagine. 
If we as Dooley's lowlifes were speaking of those upperclassmen, we called them Cadet First Class Smith. See, that was a senior, Cadet First Class, Cadet Second Class Junior, Cadet Third Class Sophomore. You get the idea. And, and, and please notice they were upperclassmen because the caste system was alive and well. We were taught to fear them. The higher up the pyramid, the greater the fear. Well, after summer boot camp, that also was lots of fun, we began our fall semester. I found myself in 5th Squadron, Vandenberg Hall. And I found out that there was a squadron Bible study on Wednesday evenings. So with all of the hazing and homework and schoolwork and everything that we had to do, I thought, you know, maybe for a breath of spiritual reality, I'll go to the squadron Bible study. So I marched at attention down to the room, squaring my corners, walked into the room that first evening, and there leading the study sat Greg Brundage. Now, Cadet First Class Greg Brundage was not a bad guy. He just happened to be the squadron commander and therefore the highest ranking cadet in our squadron. I was not sure what to do. Marched in, kind of didn't know whether to stand at ease, stayed at attention, greeted him as I had been trained to do. I, I stammered, Good evening, sir, and I'll never forget this as long as I live. He looked at me and said, in here it's not sir, it's Greg. I, a, a duly, an untouchable, was allowed to call the highest member of our cast Greg. You see, within Christianity... We were brothers in Christ. And Greg understood something. He understood that Christianity revolutionizes relationships. Now, I know some of you have been in the military. I don't need to talk about military decorum and esprit de corps and change of command, all that. I get that. It was grilled into us as freshmen. We were a unit, the lowest of the low, mind you, but a unit nonetheless. So we all memorized the same stuff, all wore the same clothes and the same colors. We were, after all, uh, the class of 82, best in blue. But Greg understood there was something that transcended our military relationship, and that was our family relationship in Jesus Christ. So I looked him up. I found him on Facebook. Here he is. I think I, I weathered. I aged a little better than he, don't you think? He served 33 years as an officer before retiring as a brigadier general a couple of years ago. Facebook page, I read some of his posts. He just finished after retiring a motorcycle tour of the United States on one of his two Harley Davidsons. Brigadier general can afford that. One Harley he calls grace and the other he calls mercy. And while he rode alone, he was in the journal that he kept during this multi-state tour, he was quick to point out that he traveled with his, with his shepherd, Jesus Christ. 
I sent him a friend request. I haven't heard back from him. <laughs> Still a dooley, you know. <laughs> but I want to I tell him what an impact he had on an untouchable 35 years ago. Because Christianity revolutionizes relationships. It brings us into one family, brothers and sisters in Christ, with one father made possible by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And whoever we are in life, whatever station of life you find yourself right now, whatever social class of our day, we are first and foremost a family. This is the message of the book of Philemon. You, you can turn there as we begin our three or four week study of the book. And you say, are you kidding me? You're going to get through an entire book in a month? It's only one chapter. In fact, it's just a very short book, probably one page in your Bible, found right near the back, right before the book of Hebrews. As I shared recently, the Apostle Paul wrote 13 letters, which became part of our Bibles. He wrote more letters than that, but 13 of them became part of the Scripture. His letters can be loosely categorized as follows. And by the way, they go in this order. His early letters, Galatians, uh, named early, by the way, because they were his first letters, uh, Galatians and First and Second Thessalonians. His major epistles so named because they were the long ones, uh, First and Second Corinthians and, and Romans. His prison epistles, uh, we'll talk about that in a moment, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. And then his last letters that he wrote, his pastoral epistles, First and Second Timothy and Titus. As some of you may remember, we are studying through Paul's letters in the order he wrote them. It's taken us a little longer to study them than it took him to write them. Now, it should become quickly obvious that they are not placed in order in your New Testament. In fact, Philemon should actually be right there with Colossians. That's why, having just finished Colossians, we begin Philemon because they actually go together. Not sure why they separated them by so many books in the New Testament. But, but, but why are these four called prison epistles? Because as we have read and studied through them, it's clear that he wrote them from prison, prison epistles. For example, in Ephesians chapter 3 and, and chapter 6, he writes, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, then he goes, to make known the boldness of the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Obviously, he's in prison. Philippians. You can pretty much read all of chapter 1. We'll just look at a couple of verses. Now, I want you to know, brothers, that my circumstances, what circumstances? Well, have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole praetorian guard. The praetorian guard was the imperial guard, those who were assigned to, to, to take care of and, and protect uh, the emperor. And so that's why we surmise that he was in Rome. Colossians chapter 4, that book that we just finished, last chapter. Uh, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, says hi. Last verse of the, of the book, remember my imprisonment. And now to our new book, Philemon, he says, for example, not all of them, verses 10, 
10, 13, and 23. I appeal to you for my child Onesimus. Remember that, Onesimus is kind of important. Whom I have begotten in my imprisonment. Whom I, whom I wish to keep with me so that on your behalf he might minister to me in my imprisonment for the gospel. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner, says hi also. So, we put all of that together and most agree that Paul wrote these four letters from prison, likely the imprisonment that we read about at the end of the book of Acts. The book of Acts ends and he's under house arrest in Rome for a period of two years. So we can then assign a date uh, of about 60 to 62 AD. Now, while the authorship of uh, of some of the other prison epistles have been questioned. The, the fact that Paul wrote Philemon has never been seriously doubted, except for in those philosophy of religion classes that seek to destroy the authority and inspiration and reliability of Scripture, but we won't go there. Now, another thing we should remember is that Paul undoubtedly wrote Colossians and Philemon at the same time. And in fact, he actually sent them by the same courier, by the same mailman, our guy Tychicus. In fact, if you read the closing of Colossians, which we just spent three weeks looking at, and Philemon, especially the closing of Philemon, you see lots of similarities. For example, as I just noted, Paul was a prisoner when he wrote both letters. But not only that, both letters are said to be from Paul and Timothy. We'll talk about Timothy in a moment. This letter is addressed to Philemon, but Archippus is also named, who is, um, who is also encouraged to finish his ministry, whatever that was, at the end of Colossians. Remember that from last week. Colossians is with, uh, excuse me, is sent, the, the letter of Colossians is sent with Tychicus, and, and we find out that Onesimus is also traveling with Tychicus, that same Onesimus that Philemon is about. Finally, as you read the closings of both letters, we find five of six colleagues who are with Paul in Rome send greetings to Colossae and also still with him when he writes Philemon and send their greetings as well, namely Epaphras, Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke. I don't see anybody writing. Might question you on this a little later. So with all of that in mind... Let's look at the first three verses of the letter to set the stage for us. And that's what I'm doing. It's what introduction does. It sets the stage for us. But I am going to finish by asking the very important question, <laughs> why is this thing here? We're going to find that this is a personal letter. Why did it find its way into our Bibles? What's Paul's purpose? Well, read those first three verses with me. Philemon verses 1 to 3 say this. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved brother and fellow worker, and to Appia, our sister, and to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house, grace you in peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And up until a few weeks ago, you said, how is he going to preach a whole message on that? And you know, I can preach like four or five on that. Following the letter-writing convention of his day, the, the typical pattern uh, of other letters during this time, uh, Paul does three things. He identifies the author, he identifies the recipients, and he sends a greeting. Look at each of those with me briefly. First, the author. As I've already 
suggests that Paul is the author, although as a courtesy, he acknowledges Timothy as well. Timothy was like his constant companion. He's probably the guy writing Philemon as Paul dictates it. So he says, oh, Timothy's right here um, as well. You see, even though he mentions Timothy, Paul uses the first person singular throughout the letter. He talks about his personal relationship, I and me with the recipient of the letter. This is how we know it's actually just from Paul. And then notice that Paul identifies himself as a prisoner of Jesus Christ. Now, usually he calls himself an apostle, referring to his authority to teach and to give instructions, even, even commands to those he's writing. But here, though, he doesn't call himself, he doesn't call on his apostolic authority. Instead, throughout this very short letter, he calls on he calls on their relationship as brothers in Christ to accomplish his purposes. Don't miss that. Even at the outset, the very first line of the letter, we see that Christianity has transformed their relationship and brought them into this deep and meaningful um, relationship, just like it does for us, deeper than we ever thought possible. It's also possible that he calls himself a prisoner a low-life, subcast, untouchable prisoner because he's identifying with another low-life, this guy named Onesimus. So, we see he calls himself a prisoner. Now, 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 we know he's a prisoner in Rome. I just said that a few minutes ago under house arrest. But what's interesting is he calls himself here a prisoner of, of who? Uh, of Jesus Christ. <laughs> what, Paul? I mean, you're a little delirious. No. Paul understood as a follower of Jesus, fully sold out to him, that he was ultimately owned by Christ, his master. And he was, and these words are very intentional, I need you to listen. And he was exactly and always where Christ wanted him to be exactly and always where Christ wanted him to be. So while he was a prisoner of Rome, big deal, he was ultimately a prisoner of Christ. And can I suggest this morning that that is also true in your life, by the way? If, big if, if you are following Christ in a life of full surrender, wherever you are right now, no matter how difficult it might be, no matter how difficult the challenges, no matter how high or how low the class, you are exactly and always where Christ wants you to be. Don't, don't listen to those guys who tell you that you can have your best life now, and that best life now includes a stress-free, problem-free, happy, wealthy life. No. Your best life now, you can live, but it might include Suffering for Christ if he so ordains it. So, Paul writes this letter, but to whom does he write? Who are the recipients? This is a little less clear at first glance. Second part of verse 1 into verse 2, he tells us he writes Philemon, his beloved brother and fellow worker, and to Apphia, our sister, and to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house. Why don't you just say like to everybody, Paul? I mean, look at all the recipients there. Philemon, Apphia, Archippus, and the church meets in, well, somebody's house. So, so the questions then become these. Who are these people? Where are they? And where is this church meeting anyway? 
You would be surprised at the amount of scholarly debate that takes place over those questions. I'll spare you and just cut to the chase. Again, in the letter writing convention of the day, you identified the recipient, the primary recipient of the letter, if there was one, by listing him or her first. And we know that there was a primary recipient in this letter because most of the body of the letter, in fact, all of it, verses 4 to 22, use the second person singular pronoun. You see, we are at a disadvantage with English because you means you and you means y'all, right? And we can't tell by looking, but not so in Greek. He's writing to a single person, uh, uh, the person listed first, who is Philemon. And as we read the rest of the letter, we find that Paul is sending back a slave to Philemon, but sending him back where? Well, at the end of Colossians, Paul identified Onesimus, the one he's sending back, as one of your number, meaning Onesimus was from Colossae, which is why he's tagging along with Tychicus, who is delivering this letter to Colossae. So, most scholars, after all the hot air, agree that Philemon is the primary addressee. He is a slave named Onesimus who has somehow wandered off. We'll talk about that. And Paul is sending him back. And the, and the church in Colossae, we find here, meets in Philemon's house. Further, many suggest that Apphia is likely Philemon's wife. Almost everybody says that. She's also a sister. You say, why would they say, just because she's a woman, how do we know it's Philemon's wife? Because he's dealing with a personal issue about a runaway slave from their household, she would have had a, an acute interest. All we know about Ar Archippus uh, is that he is also in this church in Colossae, and he had some ministry that Paul says, I want you to do it. That's all we know. So, everyone, isn't this exciting? Wake up. Okay, so everyone agrees that this is a personal letter. As I said last week, 12 of Paul's 13 letters were written to churches, groups of churches, or pastors of churches. Only this one is written primarily to an individual, right? But why then does Paul address it to the church who meets in Philemon's house? To this house church in Colossae. Why does he do that? I mean, didn't Tychicus just show up with a letter from Paul and, and give it to the and read it to the Colossians? Why does he why does he send this letter to the church as well? Well, some suggest that Paul uh, wants this letter to Philemon read publicly because he's asking Philemon to do something. And he thinks if we read it publicly, it'll bring a little pressure to bear. <laughs> Maybe it's more likely. Because the truth in this letter has an impact beyond Philemon. In fact, the truth of this letter impacts our lives today, which is why it's in your Bible right before Hebrews. The truth of this letter is the truth, frankly, that I experienced 35 years ago when I walked into a squadron Bible study as an untouchable. From the recipients, Paul moves to his traditional greeting. I'll just say a couple things about that. Most letters at this time had a from so-and-so to so-and-so, hello. 
Paul took that traditional greeting and Christianized it. Instead of saying greetings, like we would say hello, he, he says grace. In fact, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's quite normal for him. You see, grace and corresponding peace are, are Christian benefits. They are benefits of the gospel. So Paul reminds them, grace to you. And, and as a result, peace. And it must come in that order, order first. In order for you to have peace, you got to have the grace of Christ first. Grace to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And he always did that. He always named them both, putting them on equal footing. You see, grace and peace are ours because of the plan of the Father carried out by the Son. So, that's all introduction, just kind of laying the groundwork. Glad you were here, I'm sure. So all that then brings us to the very important question, what is the purpose of this personal letter? Why is it here? Why do we have it in our Bibles? You may have noticed both the slides this morning and the bulletin perhaps in your lap. They were intended to be a bit provocative. In fact, as our communication director, Steve Colley, came up with this, he showed it to the pastors, and we kind of all took a look at it, and we're going, oh, I don't know. That's a, bit, that's a bit in your face. And as we talked about it and prayed about it, we said, you know what? This is good because it communicates the truth of the book. What, what do I mean? Well, Paul has been roundly criticized for his handling of slavery throughout his letters. He addresses the issue of slavery in a number of different places. For, for example, we, we saw him address slaves and masters in his household codes in Ephesians and Colossians. Remember that? In those two books, he said things like this. In Ephesians 6, slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling. Be very afraid. And masters, do the same thing. Give up threatening. Well, at least he told them, be nice. But what? He, he tells slaves to obey their masters with fear and trembling. They probably didn't need that bit of instruction. Whatever happened to abolition and freedom? What are you doing, Paul? Are you out of your mind? What about the household code in Colossians 3? Maybe you got it right there. Slaves, in all things, obey those who are your masters. In all things, obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Now I want you to be afraid of God. Why? Because, verse 25, he who does wrong, if you don't obey rightly, you're going to get it. Paul, what's wrong with you? Masters, grant your slaves justice and fairness. Well, at least he Tells the masters to be nice. I mean, what in the world is going on here? <sighs> when given the opportunity, why does Paul not call for the emancipation of slaves and the abolition of slavery? Well, Paul is just a product of his time. He and the whole Bible is okay with slavery. You know how many people have dismissed the Bible because of this one issue? Is that right, though? Is this right? Now, we're going to save the discussion about slavery for the next couple of weeks when Paul addresses Philemon about, we've got to face it head on about his slave, Onesimus. But here's what I want you to know at this point. 
And that takes us back to our introduction. Christianity transforms and revolutionizes relationships. Look back at the title slide or, or your bulletins more closely. More than a slave. That's what Christianity does. Christian relationships transcend all others, no matter what your station in life, whether you're a slave or a dooley or an untouchable or a freshman or a blue-collar worker or an educated, poor, non-white. In Christ, we are more. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. We are family. That is the point of this book. I'll go further. Most agree that Paul's gentle dealing with the subject of slavery, particularly in this book, his gentle dealing with slavery sounded a death knell to the institution. It was now only a matter of time. Folks, as we jump into this book, I want you to understand something. I hate prejudice. I hate slavery as much as you do. But true Christianity erases class structure and deals finally with prejudice and makes us all one in Christ. I want to remind you that Paul had just written the book of Colossians. And in chapter 3, he said, there is no distinction, no difference between Greek and Jew uncircumcised and uh, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian and Scythian. What is that? Barbarian and Scythian. Those were the untouchables. Those were the lowlifes. There's no difference between slave and freeman. But Christ is all and in all. In this book, Philemon, there are three main characters. Paul, Philemon, and Onesimus, a highly trained former Pharisaical Jew, a wealthy, free Gentile, and an untouchable lowlife slave. <laughs> All one in Christ. As we close, listen to a what a couple of my commentators have said about this book. These are great words. When Paul urges Philemon to receive Onesimus no longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother, and goes on to speak of him both as a man and as a brother in the Lord, he makes slavery meaningless. I love that. Another says, what this letter does is to bring us into an atmosphere in which the institution, that's slavery, the institution could only wilt and die. Hallelujah. Next, Paul does not speak primarily as the friend of the master. Instead, he speaks as the friend of the slave. In requesting that Philemon receive Onesimus back as a beloved brother, Paul is altering the social system by which characters related to each other because Christianity revolutionizes relationships. Whether Onesimus remained a slave or not, he could no longer be regarded as a slave. That may have been his job title. It's not who he was. 
The relationship between the two men is deepened so that, in a sense, the terms slave and master are transcended. Hallelujah. Finally, listen to Paul to Philemon in verses 15 and 16. For perhaps he, Onesimus, was for this reason separated from you for a while that you would have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother. Because Christianity revolutionizes relationships. It transcends all others. Let's pray. Father, this is an incredible truth that we're getting ready to jump into, eyeball deep in this book. Unbelievable truth. While our society, even in the name of religion, seeks to keep uh, people separated, the truth of Christianity is that we are all one. We are, a, we are a family together, brothers and sisters in Christ. And would you remind us of this revolutionary truth in this book? In Christ's name we pray.